This is the Radio Bible Class, and I'm your host, Tim Carter. We welcome you to our Bible study as the Radio Bible Class streams across the nation and around the world. We bring to you a message how Christ ministers to his disciples after the resurrection. We greet you on the internet and radio with the message that Jesus is alive today. Now, today's lesson is titled Obsession and Vengeance, and it comes from 2 Samuel 13, 23-39. But before we start our lesson today, Word Talking could use your support. Now, playing music on the radio may sound simple, but actually it's quite costly due to publishing rights and royalties. And before that first song was ever played, there's utility bills and tower rental fees and maintenance and so forth. We need people just like you to help with a tax-deductible gift, so won't you do that today? You can do that by calling us at 601-483-8648, and there they can take your information safely and securely over the phone or mail us your gift to Word Talk Inc., P.O. Box 4334, Meridian, Mississippi 39304. Now, your gift to Word Talk Inc. is IRS approved as a 501c3 tax exempt ministry. Your contribution is never used for salaries or managerial purposes, but 100% of it goes to the expense providing the good news of Jesus Christ to our listening area. Hebrews 13.16 says, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. If you'd like to go back and listen to a previous lesson, you can do that by going to our podcast website. That's Radio Bible Class with no spaces between radiobibleclass.podbean.com or catch us wherever you listen to your podcast. Whether that's on iTunes or Spotify or Amazon or Google or wherever, we're there too. Just search for WMER, Radio Bible Class, with no space between Radio Bible Class. As we pick up today, back in 2 Samuel, we'll be in the 13th chapter. We'll start almost towards the bottom of it at the 23rd verse. Before we get there, let me just give you a, a quick summary of where we're at. You know, we've been studying the book of 2 Samuel for about the last 13 weeks. And what we've seen from 2 Samuel was when David comes to be king. 1 Samuel was about going from the judges to the king, and we saw King Saul. We saw him rise and then him fall. We saw that David was selected and anointed way back when he was like 15 years old. Just a young lad, he was anointed to be king, but he had to wait. And he even had to run for his life from Saul for over 10 years. But now he's become king. And we've seen God's anointing over him. And one of the first things that happened after he became king is he took the city of Jerusalem back. And then we saw that he subdued all his enemies to the north and to the south and to the east and to the west. God blessed him. He wanted to build a temple, but God told him, no, you take care of my people. I've anointed you and made you king for you to take care of my people so that they would have a place to live and they would be safe and secure. Your son can build that temple. And we studied about that. Now, David was at the peak of his reign and all of a sudden he begins to fall. And how does he fall? First, he falls because he didn't control his thoughts. He was out on one of his decks overlooking the city when he spotted Bathsheba. He inquired about her. He had her to come. They laid together she became pregnant to cover it all up. He then had Uriah the Hittite killed. David thought he got away with it. Even though she became pregnant from his one night fling and now he's killed Uriah the Hittite, nobody's going to know because after she mourns, he marries her and then he adopts that child, even though it's his child. So nobody should know, even though some did. But guess who else knew? God knew. And God sends his anointed. He sends Nathan to him. And Nathan tells him, you are the man. He tells him a parable. David gets angry towards the sin that's in this parable. And Nathan looks at him and points at him and says, you are the man. 
And we see that David confesses and he repents. But there was a price for that sin. And we studied that sin has consequences. And we saw the consequence that came from this sin. But Nathan also gave some prophecy about how things would happen to David and there'd be turmoil in his house. It would be from within his house. And then we wrapped up chapter 12 with how the favor was restored. How God's favor was put back on him because of his repentance, because of his humbleness. God turned around and blessed him and gave him a decisive victory. But then we went to chapter 13. That was last week. And we looked at lust or love. And we looked at how a repeat of what David did came within his house. David's only daughter, Tamar, is brutally raped by his oldest son, Amnon. Tamar had a brother, and his name was Absalom. Some commentators say that Absalom used this incident to make a run and a power struggle for the kingdom, to be king and overthrow his dad. And we'll highlight some of that today as we go through this lesson. But what I want you to understand is that David did nothing. Amnon did this. David heard about it. David got angry, but he didn't do anything to his child. And again, a lot of commentators said that may have been because he had done something very similar with Bathsheba. And we're going to see a repeat today of something else he did, and that was murder Uriah, the Hittite. And today we're going to see Absalom murder Amnon. So that's the end of our quick summary. That takes us roughly to verse 23. And so if you would, open your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 23. I'll be reading out of the ESV. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shears at Belhazar, which is near Ephraim. And Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shears. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go, and he gave his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. And then all the king's son arose and each mounted a mule and fled. And we're going to stop right there for now. I labeled today's lesson Obsession and Vengeance. I'm sure we all have one time been hurt so bad or we just wanted to get even. We wanted to get back at that person, but that's not what the Bible teaches us to do. I remember growing up in high school, I had to read a book. It was called Moby Dick, and it is a story about obsession and vengeance. Captain Ahab, a whaler, loses a leg to this white whale. And what we see about Captain Ahab is he was never very jolly. He was even a little out of his mind at times. Captain Ahab was desperate and moody, and he was savage at some times because of the loss of his leg to that well. And ultimately, Captain Ahab's anger grows into this fixation on revenge against this sea monster. As his hatred grows, so does his lack of wisdom. On his next sea voyage, hunting for this well, his soul begins to overrise his good judgment, and it puts himself and his crew and his ship into insanely hazardous situations. The book describes it as his common sense is overruled by his wild passion for killing this white whale. 
Everything around him is secondary. Only killing this white whale is his focus. And the book takes us to a point as he's going through all these perils, he has his opportunity. An opportunity to take vengeance finally arrived. The white whale is within Ahab's grasp. A chase ensues for three days. And the crew members realize that Ahab's silliness, his craziness, may mean doom to them. One of the first mates go to Ahab and they tell him, hey, it's too late. Don't you see we've chased him for three days? And Moby Dick doesn't seek you. You madly seek after him. But it's too late. Ahab's quest for vengeance grows deeper, ignoring every danger. In the end, the ship is lost, the crew is lost except for one, and Ahab loses both his quest and his life. The white whale has won. And what we can learn from that and what we need to learn today is that hatred, revenge, and vengeance is incredibly destructive, and it will destroy you. And this story of Moby Dick is a great illustration for today's lesson in which Absalom murders his half-brother Amnon. The Bible tells us for two years he has hated his brother. That hate has festered in him, it's smoldered in him, and he wants vengeance back. And verse 20 says, After two full years, Absalom had sheep shears at Belhazar. But to truly understand what's gone on over the last two years, you really have to go back one verse. You have to go back to the what verse we ended with, last week, and that was verse 22. But Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. Some commentators or theologians say that Amnon was like David. He thought he had got away with this rape because two years have gone by and nothing has happened to him. There's no judgment against him so far. The Bible is quiet about what happened over these two years. Other than in verse 22, we know that Absalom hated Amnon. The record is silent in the Bible. David could have abated his anger. Tamar's pain could have subsided. Perhaps people's memories has even dimmed. But Absalom's hatred has burned deep within him. There's an obsession. There is a vengeance that he wants just like Captain Ahab. But we see in verse 23, two years have passed, and now it's time to do a sheep shearing. And if you remember back in 1 Samuel when David finally marries Abigail, that there's a sheep shearing going on, and this typically was a feast that went on. They would gather all the sheep in, they would shear them, but at night they would get together and they would drink wine and they would eat a meal and they would be merry. It was a time to celebrate because all the hard work was about to pay off as they sold this wool. Anyhow, the Bible tells us that this was sheep shear going on in this little town, Belhazar, right outside of Ephraim. And Absalom has a chance. He's probably been planning this for quite some time. And he invites the king's sons to the sheep shearing feast. He probably waited two years so no one would be suspicious and that the king would allow all the sons go so that he could kill Amnon. So Absalom has been buying his time. He wanted this year's sheep shearing feast to be the big one. He wanted this year's to be the one where he got his vengeance. And Absalom came to King David and he says, Let your sons, all your sons, come to the sheep shearing. Let your sons come to my party. Let them come to the feast that I'm going to throw. If you go back to verse 24, you notice not only did he invite the sons, but he invited King David. Again, theologians or commentators say that this was the first act that he would have killed David there 
with Amnon, which would have made him the immediate king. He was third in line, but the second son, other than being named that he was born, is no longer stated. So he's no longer in the picture. It is thought that he's died. So it's King David, then Amnon would be the, the next in line, and then Absalom. And we're going to see that Absalom still makes a run for the king. But I want you to notice in verse 24, not only does he invite the sons, but he invites King David. And King David says, well, you know, that would be great. I'm sure it's going to be a fun party, but I can't come. No, we don't want to be a burden to you. And he said, no, 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 well, you wouldn't be a burden. Let everybody come. And so David says, I'm not coming, but I'll allow the sons to go. Are you like King David? Has someone invited you sometime to something? Maybe you didn't want to go. Maybe you were just being nice and you're saying, no, it'd just be too excessive. It'll be too much work. That would be too much on you for me to go. Well, that's what David does when he says what he says right there in verse 24. But Absalom keeps pressing him. And so David says he's not going, but he gives his blessing to let Absalom invite all the other sons to his feast. But I want you to look at verse 26 with me. It's not like David didn't probably have some inclination. He knew that Absalom and Amnon didn't get along. He knew that Absalom hated Amnon. So why the invitation? And David asked him that. He said, why should he go with you? But Absalom had been planning this for quite some time. And what did he do? He was ready for that question. And he gives the king the right answer. And so the king lets Amnon and all his sons go. He persuaded David to let all the princes attend this feast. Uh, again, I will point out right here, this is the second time that David's been fooled by his sons. First, to get Tamar in a room all by Amnon's self so that he can rape her. And now, Absalom to get Amnon and the other sons down there so that he can kill Amnon. And I want you to look at the words in verse 28 real quick. Realize the feast isn't going on yet, but he tells his men in verse 28, Mark, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. In other words, I'm going to get him drunk, and then when I give you the signal, you kill him. And then what does he say to him? Be courageous and be valiant. If you don't think this has played out in Absalom's mind, you're foolish. As cunning as he can be, he's thought through this. He's probably pictured it in his mind that when he's merry, when he's drunk, when he's vulnerable and relaxed, then we'll pounce on him and we will kill him. And then also he tells his men to be strong and courageous. These are the same words that were used by Moses when he encourages the people as they get ready to go out to battle. That the Lord is with them. Be strong and courageous. The other reason why I think he used this and other theologians do is because they were worried that they were going to take a punishment from the king. But he was saying, I commanded you to do this. Be strong and courageous and make sure you let them know I did this. And so as Nathan has said in his prophecy over in chapter 12, verse 10, that the sword shall never depart from your house. In other words, there's going to be death from your house that Amnon is murdered. This is definitely a partial fulfillment of that promise. The other thing I want you to realize is that David committed adultery and then he got Uriah drunk and then he murdered him. And so Amnon did the same thing. Amnon committed incest. He raped Tamar. Now he's made drunk, and then he's murdered by his brother Absalom. Very similar to what David had done. So as the father does, the children do also. But picture this. The royal guest arrives. The sheep-shearing feast begins. Everyone's relaxed and enjoying the food and the wine. 
And then Absalom gives his dead knee signal, whatever that was. And the servants of Absalom go to Amnon and they kill him just as they were commanded. The murder takes place in full view of everyone at the feast. They see what went down. And as I've said, the two heinous crimes that David committed, sexual immorality and murder, are now repeated from his two sons. And this section of scripture wraps up with all the folks that saw what went on. They fled in fear. They jumped on their mule or their horse and they fled away, fearing that their lives would be taken. But now look at verse 30 with me real quick. While they were on their way, news came to David. Absalom has struck down all the king's son and not one of them is left. Then the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth. And all of his servants who were standing by tore their garments. But Jonadab, the son of Shema, David's brother. Remember, this is the guy that told Amnon what to do on Tamar. He said, let not my Lord suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's son, for Amnon alone is dead. For by the commandment of Absalom, this has been determined. For this day, he violated his sister Tamar. Now, therefore, let not my lord the king so take his heart as to suppose all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. Well, David gets news that all his sons have been killed. Absalom has killed all the sons that he let go to this sheep shearing party. But that's not true. And we see that Jonadab speaks up and says, hey, whoa, you're overreacting. It's not all your sons. It's only one son, and it's Amnon. Now, how did Jonadab know this? Just like Jonadab knew about Tamar, we see here he has inside information. We'll see in just a second that the sons come and back up his story. But how did he know it before anybody else? The king is laying on the ground, wailing because all his sons have been killed. But that's not the truth, and Jonadab steps in. The Bible doesn't tell us how Jonadab knew. There's speculation amongst theologians that one is there was a lot of whispering going on, that this was a a terribly kept secret. It was only kept from the folks that didn't need to know. Others say that Jonadab and Absalom were really close, and therefore he knew about him going to overthrow the king and that this was just one of his ploys to get everybody out of his way to take over the king's seat. But I want to be careful, and I want to say that the Bible doesn't tell us. So this is all speculation. But however it came to David, he believed that his sons have been killed. The king arose and he tore his garments and he laid on the ground. Only one person was in the know, and that was Jonadab. But I also want you to look at verse 34 and look at how the rest of this plays out. It says in verse 34, But Absalom fled. And the young man who kept the watch lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, many people were coming from the road behind him and beside the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's son have come. As your servant said, so it has come about. And as soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's son came and lifted up their voices and wept. And the king also and all his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talamai, the son of the king of Geshar. And David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshar and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. Absalom knows what he's done is wrong and he runs for his life. He runs back to Geshar. Why does he go there? Because that's where his mom 
was the daughter of the king and David had married her so that there would be peace between these two nations. So he goes back to a protective place where he can be protected. And he's there for three years. And the Bible tells us that right there that David longed for his son, but Absalom fled and David mourned for his son day after day. Absalom fled and went to Geshur. And we was there for three years, but David longed for him. The spirit of the king longed to go out to him. David missed his son. This morning that David had, the Bible's really quite about it, other than it says that David mourned for his son. Was that Amnon or was that Absalom? And most theologians feel like it was for Absalom and the relationship that he lost with Absalom. But if you read other translations right there in verse 39, what it's saying, if you look at the Hebrew, it is saying that David yearned to see his son and that he no longer wanted to take vengeance on him. And this is the other point I want to point out, is that we saw Absalom run for his life. That was his reaction to what happened. He felt like he was going to be killed. He was going to get the same justice that he gave Amnon. But we see David's response. And it's the same response that he had last time. When Tamar was raped and he found out he was mad, he was hurt, but he didn't do anything about it. Now that Absalom has murdered Amnon, we read that David's mourning and his spirit is longing to go out to Absalom. And he did absolutely nothing to punish Absalom. Some commentators say he ran for his life, but he knew that his father wouldn't do anything. Just like he didn't do anything to Amnon when he raped Tamar, he wasn't going to do anything. But I don't know that I believe that because three times it says that he fled. And so there definitely was fear that there would be a retaliation. So we're running out of time. So how does this apply to us? How does this passage of scripture apply to us? Well, immediately comes to my mind is Romans 12, 19. And it says, Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. If you look at the New Living Translation, it says, Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scripture says, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Jesus taught something similar to this. If you look at Luke 6, verse 9, it says, The one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. For the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Again, the New Living Translation puts it in English. It says, If someone slaps you on one cheek, Offer the other cheek to him. If someone demands your coat, give your shirt too. Jesus is teaching that vengeance is not ours. We shouldn't be like captive Ahab. We shouldn't be holding a grudge. As a matter of fact, what we find is that it eats away at us like a cancer. A study was done by the American Medical Journal. You know what it was studied on? It was studied on what happens when you hold in a grudge, when you hold in resentment, when you hold in hatred. It impacts your mental and physical health is what they found. There's a saying that when you hold in a grudge, when you hold in resentment, when you hold in that hatred, it's like drinking poison, expecting the other person to get sick. But they don't. Who does it kill? It kills you. And why does it kill you? Because it puts your body in a conic state of tension. The study shown that it increases the inflammation in your body and the stress hormone cortisol in the body. But when you do what the Bible teaches and you give forgiveness, it heals itself. It helps the immune system function more efficiently and make room for good hormones like serotonin and oxytocin. Both of those are needed for you to have well-being. 
But I want to point out that this study only confirms what the Bible teaches, that we should not hold a grudge. If we're tempted to hold an offense, if we're tempted not to forgive, if we're tempted to hold hatred, then we need to remind ourselves that we are doing damage to ourselves. I remember Pastor Jerry Johnson, when I was growing up, teaching about two women that were in a church. I don't know if the story's true or not, but there were these two women that had hatred for one another. Even though they called themselves Christians, they couldn't let go of some trite stuff that happened between them. Anyhow, one woman had a sickness that wouldn't get healed, even though many had prayed over. The other woman had never received the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues. Well, the pastor had watched this over a year or so, and one Sunday morning, he sees it going on again as church is getting ready to start, and he comes right off the stage, and he goes to him, and he says, I'm not having this anymore. You either get together as sisters in Christ, or you either get out of this church. They both broke into tears, and they began to apologize to each other. Both of them were ready to take the blame as they cried and they hugged each other right there before their eyes. That sickness that this woman has never been able to get over was healed. And the other woman all of a sudden started speaking in tongues. They saw out of this was that they realized for years they had been holding something back that allowed them to get to the next level with God. And someone listening to me today, there is some obsession or some vengeance or some hatred that you have deep down inside. You've said you've forgiven it, but you haven't gotten it out of your system. And I hear you. I hear what you're saying. You're saying the same thing that Absalom said, but it's not my fault. Amnon did this to my sister, and I'm taking revenge. See, even when you think you're not at fault, it makes no difference. You have to put that matter to rest. Do what the Bible says. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 6, 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat to you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? What that defrauded means, why not let yourself be cheated? Why not accept the injustice and leave it at that? It's not natural to do this. As a matter of fact, it's almost impossible to do this unless you have the help of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit helps you control your emotions and your attitude. It helps you have forgiveness. It lets you have a peace. It lets you have a love, a kindness, and grace. By allowing to walk in the Spirit, it allows you to overlook the wrongs of others. So today, is that you? How do you respond? Let us pray. Dearly Father, we come before you today, Lord. We thank you for this time together. Lord, I thank you for this lesson on vengeance and obsession. Lord, we need to learn that it's not our natural response to forgive others. But it's like a cancer that eats away with us as we sit here over time. In this passage, we see that Absalom spent two years planning out a death for two years, he planned on what he was going to do, and he waited for the time to be just right so no one would be suspicious that he could act out. And we see through this passage that that ate away with him, and then he had to run for his life. Lord, let us understand that we forgive others because you first forgave us. We've all sinned against you. We all sent Jesus to the cross. We deserve that death, but you sent your son for us. Lord, let us understand that and let us forgive others and let it heal from inside. Lord, let your Holy Spirit help us forgive and love others, even those that hurt us. It's not natural. And Lord, for the one that doesn't understand this, Lord, I pray today that they let you be Lord of their life. Maybe they've prayed a prayer. Maybe they have grew up in church, but they've never accepted you as Lord of their life. They've never had that heart-changing event that you do when we become saved. 
Lord, I pray today that they would truly believe that you came and you died on a cross. Lord, that they need you. They need a Savior. And Lord, that you are the way, you are the only way that we're going to make it and stand before a righteous God. And right now, Lord, I pray today that they would admit they're a sinner and they need you as Lord and they will confess you before men and chase after you. Lord, it's in your name we pray. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.